Well, shall we get started here? Um, I forgot to put an opening prayer uh, in here today. That doesn't mean we won't pray, but uh, um, sorry about that. And I will get back to that uh, next week. I, I, I like putting a printed prayer there um, because if you happen to feel like that's something that's good, you could take it and use it yourself. So um, I think prayer is a lot like, uh, learning to pray is a lot like learning to talk. That a lot of it is by imitation, you know, listening to others, but also, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I developed a lot of my vocabulary through reading books and, uh, and sometimes just having something in front of you to, um, you know, it enhances the way that you, uh, you pray and it advances your vocabulary, so to speak. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that we could be here this morning and we pray that you would bless our conversation. Uh, we pray that your spirit would be upon us. Uh, we, we read in 1 Corinthians 12 at the early service, we'll read it again at the late, um, that we are all uh, baptized in one spirit and we're all, we all drink of that same spirit. And we ask that um, you would be present among us through your spirit to enliven us, to give us faith, to uh, help us to receive your word, uh, to read it, mark it, and inwardly digest it. And we ask that, uh, that you would bless this time that we have together, that we would uh, grow in our faith by that same spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I did talk with Bob this week and put a finer point on uh, um, when I'm going to be going down to teach 611. Um, and that is going to be, uh, my first week down there will be March 20, or February 20th, excuse me. Um, so uh, we'll get through as much of Romans 8 as we get through. But uh, honestly, I'm not confident that we will finish it before I go down there. Um, it's just such a meaty chapter. It, it is just, it's one of the most beautiful parts of the New Testament, um, one of the most beautiful parts of the scriptures. And uh, it's something that's just, it's just chock full of, of God's grace and uh, the message of how he works in our lives. Um, so, um, we'll, we'll, like I said, we'll get through what we, what we get through and we'll pick it up when, when I can get back. So, um, I do have another project that's kind of in my mind for when we finish Romans. And I think I may have gotten this idea from you, Nancy, um, going back through the Sunday school stories. Um, you know, from back in the day, you know, we used to go and we'd, we'd, you know, have our Sunday school story and then, you know, you'd have your lesson and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, um, you know, so at the rate that I'm going, um, maybe four or five years from now, we can uh, do something like that. But, uh, you know, just kind of going back, Daniel and Lion's Den, uh, Jonah and the Whale, uh, Creation, Fall, all of those kinds of things, just looking at those texts that... Um, are kind of formative to uh, what we believe. So we are on Romans chapter 8, and uh, I want to look at verses 9 through 11 today. Romans 8, 9 through 11 say, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So this is right where we ended last week. Um, We had all this stuff about being dead and and being in the flesh and all of that. This is the pivot into the next part where um, uh, Paul says, you, you are not in the flesh. Uh, And just as a reminder, um, Greek verbs do not need pronouns to indicate their person or number. And so when Paul puts this uh, second person plural, you, in there, you know, he, he is intensifying what he's saying. He, he's saying, pay attention to this. You, you are not in the flesh. Um, and, uh, and you are uh, the subject of the sentence. He's like, very much, pay attention to this. You know, you're not in the flesh. Your, your situation has changed because of what God has done. Um, so the Christians in Rome are not in the flesh, and therefore... Uh, what was said of those who are in the flesh does not apply to them. They, they've been set free from that. They've been rescued from that. In the same way, we have been rescued from that as well. And he, he goes on, he says, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Um, he's not trying to cast doubt on whether or not the spirit is is on them. Um it's actually an affirmation, you know, because the, the, the Spirit dwells on you. Um, Paul's saying that the believers are not in the flesh, but they are in the Spirit because God's Spirit dwells in them. And uh, this word that's, that's translated uh, dwells, uh, it's related to the word house. Um, any of you drink or any of you eat Greek yogurt? There's a brand out there, Oikos. That word means house. Um, and uh, this is related to that. Uh, and, uh, um, and so in a sense, what it's saying is, you know, he, he, he dwells in you like, like you would live in a, in a house. And uh, I read that and it struck me, there's another place where it talks about um, a different person, the Trinity dwelling uh, with us. And that's in First John, or not First John, but John, uh, chapter one, uh, verse fourteen, where it says the Word became flesh and dwelled in or among us. Um, and it's interesting to me, anyhow, because that's a different word. When it says that Jesus dwelt among us, that word is related to the noun tent, or to be a little bit more Old Testament-y, um, tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You know, so if you remember in, in the book of Exodus, uh, God commands the Israelites to build a, a tabernacle, and this is uh, the place of worship for the Israelites. And the tabernacle was at the center of the camp, and God assigned where the other tribes were to live you know, on each side of the, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was where the sacrifices took place. It was this, you know, where worship took place. And it's also where the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night rested. 
you know, and, and so uh, it was just this really clear sense, God is in the midst of us. But the problem with the tabernacle was that it was temporary. This was while they were wandering, you know, before they got to the promised land uh, and before Solomon built a more permanent temple, um, which that word is also usually house, a house for the Lord uh, in the Old Testament. So Jesus comes to tabernacle among us and he has this period of time that he physically lives on earth among us to, to do his work. And, and now it says that the spirit houses with us. That his presence is, is more permanent for us. Now, Jesus says, lo, I am with you always at the end of Matthew, right? How can, you know, he kind of tent and then the spirit, you know, is more permanent. And it's very much related to the idea of, you know, the the Trinity that we tend to to split the Trinity and, and to look at them individually. So, you know, when you did confirmation class and you were going through the small catechism, you know, uh, you had the stuff about the Father and it tended to focus on creation and providence. And then you had the, the, the stuff about the Son and it focused on uh, Jesus' life. It talks about redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then you have the stuff about the Holy Spirit and, and, and that tends to be about um, sanctification, creation of faith, you know, as if you know, they're, they're, they're in their own distinct compartments. But the first thing that God tells the Israelites about himself, you know, behold, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So while we tend to kind of separate these out, that, that's not the way that God actually functions. Where one is, all are present. So in the beginning, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. The Spirit hovered over the waters, and God said, right? Let there be light. So we have the Father in the beginning, the Spirit hovering, and God speaks words, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so even in that moment, you have kind of this Trinitarian image. Uh, you know, it, in other books of the Bible, it talks about Jesus as the Creator, that all things were made for Him and through Him. But wait, we usually assign that to the Father, Right, because we're making little categories here and trying to you know, wrap our minds around a God who reveals himself as one, but also three persons. So when it says that you know, the Spirit dwells in us, uh, that he houses in us, that doesn't mean that we don't have Jesus anymore. You know, when we have the Spirit, we have Jesus. Jesus. The Spirit delivers Jesus to us. They're, they are... They're one. 
Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The same thing is true of him and the Spirit. So where the Spirit is, Jesus is. And I feel like I'm giving you problems that, I, you, know, that you didn't need to have. <laughs> um, so if anyone does not If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, uh, well, it's, it's, I missed something where I typed this. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Um, when I retranslated it, it, it's kind of along the sense of uh, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, this one is not his. You know, same, same kind of idea. So why would it be that without having the spirit, we cannot belong to Jesus? Because the Spirit is Jesus' presence among us. Um, there's a, a nice line in Luther's large catechism uh, talking about the, the Holy Spirit where he says, No human wisdom can understand the creed. Uh, it must be taught by the Holy Spirit alone. And when it says you know, that, that we can't understand the creed, he's not talking about the words of the Apostles' Creed. He, he's actually talking about what, what the creed represents what the creed communicates. He's talking about the substance and the summary of the whole Christian faith, that you can't take hold of this without the Spirit. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, talks about this uh, with some detail. Uh, for, starting with verse 6 and going through verse 16, uh, it says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, for God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Catch that. None of the rulers of this age understood this. This isn't something that people figured out. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those that what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work that makes this known to us, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So notice there's this, this dependency on the Spirit. Uh, for the, the, the whole relationship of faith, you know, th these are things that we're not going to be able to figure out. They had to be revealed. And the Spirit is going about this work. Um, and so when it says that you know, the, the Spirit is within, you know, it talks about 
revealing the mind of Christ to us, revealing God's mind to us. And uh, in, sometimes to the world, that's going to look like foolishness. And that's okay. Because the world cannot receive these things without the Spirit. Because they don't belong to God. We, we shouldn't be shocked when the world thinks that the things that we believe are foolish. It's a natural state for humanity. You know, we proclaim a message that can only be discerned with the help of God himself. And God is at work in that message to give the faith that will receive it. We're going to get to this in chapter 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the message and the one who creates faith come through that, that same message. So a person without the Spirit does not have Christ. That's basically what he's saying here. Pressing on. So quiet. It's making me nervous. Show my ignorance. Do Jewish people believe in the, the Spirit? Yeah. They understand this differently than we do because our understanding of the Spirit is very much formed by what Jesus says about the Spirit. But the Old Testament does talk about the Spirit of God. Um, I think of uh, uh, um, Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones, where you know, yes. prophesy to the breath. Uh, that word breath is also um, translated spirit. It's the same word. And uh, you know, so th there is a very much a, a, um, a theology of the spirit. We look at it differently because we look at the, uh, what we call the Old Testament um, through the filter of, of Jesus. You know, so you know, even when I was talking about Genesis 1, you know, without Jesus talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Without his baptism, we're probably not seeing the Trinity there. But we have that. And Jesus says of the scriptures that these speak of him. So when we interpret the Old Testament, we look at what's happening there. It, it, it's always through who is Jesus in this text. And what does you know, his life and ministry teach us about this? Amy, were you going to say something? No, I just was, you couldn't see that here, but I was just being... Oh, okay. <laughs> but if Christ is in you, on the one hand, the body is dead because of sin, and on the other hand, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Um, Paul moves from the image of flesh to body here. It's, it's the same idea, basically. And, uh, and he is talking about these earthly bodies, and, and this, this body that we're in, it will die. You know, that, that, that is guaranteed. Um, so the body is, in a sense, dead. Or as good as. You know, and, and so, you know, that's, that's the reality that, that we live in. So the body is dead, but the spirit is life. Now, if you 
are familiar with the scriptures through the uh, New International Version trans translation. Um, the New International Version translated this as your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Um, now, there, there's question about whether this is referring to your spirit or the Holy Spirit. You know, and if if we're going to be honest, you know, in terms of the context and everything, you you could go either way. Um, I you know I, I will get back to you know why I think it is the the Holy Spirit, but uh, you know I, I do think that there is room to to debate that and 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 still be you know brothers in Christ and not you know anathematize each other. Yeah. Sometimes, um, I, I think that uh, I think the text drives that a little bit more clearly when that's the case. Um, you know, so we've been talking about being saint and sinner, and that's because that's the way that the text is painting us. Um, this one's not as clear. You know, in terms of you know, oh, it really pushes us towards both. It, it it's it's kind of ambiguous. And I think that's okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it gets us to roughly the same place either way. What's not debatable in this text is um, the word life. That's a noun. You know, so when the NIV translates it, it says that you are, you know, that the spirit, they see this as the human spirit, by the way, uh, that the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, is that a true statement that when you come to faith that your spirit becomes alive because of what God is doing to you? That's Ephesians 2, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now you are alive in Christ. I have, I have no major issue with, with what the, the NIV is saying other than um, there's no verb there that says alive. Um, it, it is, the spirit is life. And that's what leads me to think that this is actually talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, so I, I lean toward the spirit here being the Holy Spirit, because every time, other time in this, this section, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. And I think that uh, my interpretation also it, it fits with the end of the statement. The spirit is life because of righteousness. You are halfway through the book of Romans. How does one become righteous? Through Christ. Through Christ. What do you do to get it? Nothing. That's why I think the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is life. Because just as you're declared righteous, and that reality, you know, it's like God says, let there be, and there is. And that, you know, is the same thing with our life here. That the Spirit makes us alive. That he creates this, this miracle in us. Um, so I'm inclined to, to preserve this sense of gift and dependence uh, that is all through the book of Romans up to this point, that your righteousness is a gift. It's all about what God has done in your life. 
And even here, you know, the body is dead. The spirit comes in and is life. Um, so if you feel like this should refer to the human spirit, does that make you wrong? Obviously. Yes, it does. <laughs> but I love you anyhow. <laughs> um, it, yeah. It, so the, the death of the body and the life of the spirit, you know, this is at the heart of every funeral. You know, um, I, I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the early service, I had a funeral on Wednesday. Um, <laughs> uh, somebody commented uh, when I did my um, weekly word, they were like, Pastor, you look nice in that video. Because <laughs> I had just come from a burial and I was still wearing my suit. And uh, <laughs> um, But uh, um, I had the funeral that evening, uh, did it over at, um, at Redeemer in Cuyahoga Falls. The the, the pastor at Redeemer, his dad died. He did not feel comfortable leading the, the funeral. He asked me to do that. Um, it, is this normal? People die. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just the sad state of our fallen experience of life and when I do a funeral I really like having a body there or some kind of remains um, I think that that is something that is actually helpful to the whole experience of the funeral because that body it proclaims the message of sin and death you know, in, in our fleshliness, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, I, I think that one of the things that I really like about uh, uh, preaching at, at funerals is I don't really have to convince anybody that bad things happen. Mm. I don't have to convince people, you know, that there is brokenness in this world. The sorrow of the occasion, you know, it's right there in between your eyes. You know, and if you believe what the scriptures say about why we die, you know, it, it, it's not, there's always, there's always this tension at funerals because people want to say nice things about the person that, that, that died. Um, and, and, and they want to hear, you know, all the nice things that they did across their life. You know, if any of you are here when I die, don't say anything nice about me. <laughs> um, talk about what God did. Okay? Um, you know, if you believe the wages of sin is death, if you believe, you know, that the, that's the reason that we die is because we live in, you know, we live in a world that's in rebellion against God, then that body in front of the church is a clear message, you know, yeah, this person was a sinner. And then that gives me as the pastor and it gives the liturgy and, and the, the hymns the opportunity to, to really proclaim, you know, Christ's salvation in the face of death. And I think that that's 
I think that's a you know such an essential part of of who we are as Christians to look at death differently than the world. You know, this is uh, one of the reasons that that we place a pall over a, a, a casket. You do you know what I mean? A, a pall is like a big sheet. Okay, um, we, we have two of them: um, one for for caskets and and one for for urns. Um, they're usually white, and they are a symbol of our baptism. It's being clothed in Christ. So the, the, the impact of death, the reality of death, is then, in a sense, covered by Jesus. So in that very important part of our, our experience of life in this world, you know, we're saying... There's something greater that covers this. Um, it's also uh, often a symbol of baptism. You know, when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death. So that just as he was raised to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That, that same idea is there uh, with the Paul. Um, so, you know, when I do, uh, when I do a, a, a funeral... I, I try to resist the temptation to talk over much about the deceased. Yeah. Just, yeah, people have heard this before. Let me know. I, I can't remember what I've said when. <laughs> I repeat myself all the time. It's important. <laughs> but uh, one of my favorite passages from the Brothers Karamazov, when there's a, there's a local priest who is considered by all to be holy and saintly and just wonderful, and he dies. And everyone is sort of uh, wondering if God will shield him from corruption. Oh, sure. Yeah, because there's a lot of stuff, you know, in the Orthodox Church about, and he was still there, you know, five years later. Well, contrary to that, he actually, he starts to stink early, <laughs> which throws people into great confusion. And one lady says that she is shocked to see such behavior from a man of his reputation. And I just love that. He's not behaving, he's dead, you know. And it, it just sort of feeds in with some of it, how we look at those things. Yeah. You know, sometimes the things that people say about people at, at the funeral, you wouldn't know it was them. Yeah, they say all these wonderful, great things, and and I have no problem with you know. I I do think that we should tell the stories of our our parents and our grandparents, and and share the the things that we admired about those who went before us, and and all of those kinds of things. The funeral is not the time, because those are not the things that are going to get you into heaven. Those are not the things that are going to push back death. You know, I've had many conversations with people, you know, who, um, you know, when we talk about life after death, they interpret that as um, the memory of their their loved ones. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not exactly eternal, is it? Because, like, just in my family, I never met my grandpa. I have a few stories about him that I got from my dad. Mm-hmm. 
I've heard of his parents, but I really don't know anything about them. That doesn't sound much like immortality to me. You know, and I, you know, I hope that, you know, I will know my grandchildren and I hope my grandchildren will talk about me someday to their children, um, you know, and might, might even know some of them, you know, maybe. But I really kind of expect that that next generation will probably know next to nothing about me. But God will still know my name. Yeah. The obelisk of Ozymandias. Yeah. Yeah. I can't quote the whole thing, but you know, that we tend to think of our accomplishments as something we achieve immortality through what we've contributed to this and that. No, it's not really immortality. It's, it's not worth doing, it's very nice, but Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so you know, when when I think about you know the funeral and this whole idea, you know, your your body is dead. Okay, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's life. It's it's living with you know death, heading toward death, you know. Um, but the spirit is life, and that that's what it gets pro- proclaimed at a funeral is that the spirit of God claimed to this person and that there is real life here. And even though now the person looks and is in fact dead. They are alive. You know, they are alive because of Jesus. They're alive because the Spirit of God is life. And the Spirit of God overcomes the death of this world. You know, so the life of the person it becomes the context in which a much greater and much more important story is told. You know, what has God done to redeem this individual? We proclaim this, this message of the gospel all the time. You know, God so loved the world. Mm-hmm. What about you? What has God done for you? Well, he washed you in baptism. He put his spirit in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. you know, that's usually what we think of as, as, as a temple, as a place where God lives, Right? Well, the Spirit of God is in you, and He is in us. The Spirit of God dwells among us. You know, so this this message of you know the body is dead, but the spirit is life. You know, it's really it really leads me anyhow. You know, in kind of this funeral type of a context to uh, uh, to focus on uh, what God did in the deceased's life. And I think that that's really, you know, where the, the focus, you know, belongs, uh, you know, for that uh, 30 minutes or so. If the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Christ from the dead will also make alive your mortal bodies because of the one indwelling of his spirit in you. Okay. Your body is dead. The spirit is life. 
The spirit is in you. Now what's going to happen to your body? It's going to live. You know, when you read through the book of Acts, I've got a whole bunch of different uh, um, uh, references there, half dozen or so, uh, to different points in the book of Acts where the apostles and the early church, they proclaim God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. That's, that is the heart of the message uh, in the book of Acts. You know, why should I believe in Jesus? Because the Father raised him from the dead. You know, and, uh, um, and so when this says that the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, it's not just, you know, Jesus' spirit. You're still dealing with this Trinitarian mystery. You know, the resurrection is rooted in the Father who gives this to the Spirit, who then raises the Son. And he says, that's what you've got going on inside you. And it's not just a spiritual reality. This spiritual reality breaks into the physical reality as well. So the testimony of, of God's people has consistently been throughout the generations, God raised Jesus from the dead. And that is proof that Jesus is God and the one that we are to put our faith and our hope in. That, that we are to, to put our trust in him. So the resurrection of Jesus is the source of our resurrection. And the Spirit is deep in this work. You know, the, the, the whole life-giving, um, you know, the Spirit of God is at work in all of this. Um, in the Apostles' Creed, we, we're going to do the Nicene Creed today, or we did the Nicene Creed today. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, we talk about, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. When we talk about the resurrection, the body's dead, the spirit is life, the body will live. You know, we, we are not, you know, clouds, you know, angels floating on clouds, people. We're not angels. That's different order of creation. Um, we're people, and people are body and spirit, and, and we will be raised to live in the body. Uh, we confess this in the Nicene Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. You know, and that's not just spiritual life. It's the whole, the, the, the whole range of what is life. Um, and then at the end of that, and I look for the resurrection of the dead. So while we live in, in a reality where we're constantly confronted with mortality, part of our message is death is defeated. Christ died for us. We live in him. And in living in him, that means that his spirit is in us. So 
all along here, Paul has spoken uh, of, of sin in the flesh and life in the spirit. That shouldn't be now, not. It should be now. Now life invades the flesh. Life invades the body. So sometimes, you know, I have described the scriptures as beginning with creation. You have fall, redemption. And what do you find in the book of Revelation? There's a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. It's moving from creation to creation. Mike. This may be a little off topic, but help me consider the flip side because some people are raised for eternal glory, but other people are raised eternally the other way. Yeah, there's a mystery involved there. Okay. <laughs> um, and what I find, you know, so God is good, right? He always does what's right. You know, his love is for all people and salvation for all people. Jesus' death atones for all the sins of the world. And yet, the only way to receive that is through faith in Jesus. So when a person is saved, it's completely and totally God's doing. And the teaching of the scripture is that when uh, a person is condemned, that's completely and totally their doing. It's like, that's not overly satisfactory. But it's, it's, it's a kind of life, or it's a kind of death. I guess it's the flip side. It truly is um, eternal death. Yeah. Is, isn't that what the passage says? So raised to eternal death? Um, yeah, i got to think on that one. This does make me think of uh, C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce. Um, in The Great Divorce... Uh, Lewis imagines heaven and hell beginning here, you know, and that you're already living that. Yeah. I always, this gets us on the edge of the, the whole predestination thing. Sorry. No, 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 that's okay. Um, which is, a, it, it, which is very difficult because, uh, um, it gets into that question of why some and not others. And those are questions that, um, you know, frankly, we can't answer. That's above our pay grade. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, um, I, I've been thinking a lot about C.S. Lewis recently. It's a little bit to do with Larry over there, but, uh, um, <laughs> uh, but, but also just, uh, you know, some other things that I'm working on. Um, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the horse and his boy, um, for me is probably the most profound of the books. Okay, um, you you can disagree with me about that. That's fine. Um, but uh, uh, there is this sense in the horse and, and and his boy. There are a couple times where um, Aslan, the Christ figure, has conversations with characters in the book, where they're they start to kind of their minds open up a little bit, you know, like, oh, you were doing this. And then they start asking about others. And there's a great line 
he, I think he says it twice in there, where he says something to the effect of, child, I was telling you your story. Jesus um, says that to, uh, to Peter yes. as well. Yes, at the end of, of the Gospel of John. Yeah. Um, wh you know, what, what about this guy over here? Yeah. What about, we think that's John. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Jesus says, roughly translated into English, what's it to you? <laughs> um, you know, uh, so when we start talking about the message of salvation, you know, a lot of this is very much geared to, I'm telling you your story. This is what I've done for you. The other stuff, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's bothersome. You know, and, and we can't really wrap our minds around it. You know, in Timothy, it says that, that uh, God loves all people and, and he wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants all people to be saved. Well, if God is all-powerful, how can his will be resisted? And how can some people then be condemned? And this leads people to say, well, that means that, you know, in the end, everybody's going to go to heaven. But that doesn't fit with the rest of the scriptures either. And so we, I think we find ourselves in a place where we just have to say, uh, I'm going to confess what it, what it says. And, you know, yeah, God has saved me. And, and thanks be to God. Yeah, Carolyn? Sometimes we forget that we're not God. Uh, we think we should be able to understand. We should be able to know and God said, no, I'm God, and you're not. And you just do it my way, because I'm right. I think he says it more lovingly than that. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but there, there, there is an element of that. Yes, I'm God, you're not. And we have to remember that, because we keep thinking that God should listen to us. Believe in things unseen. Right. But he says he does listen to us, too. That's true. He is not obligated. But we kind of think sometimes, you yeah. know, I'm doing all the right things, I'm saying the right things, I'm pushing yes. the right buttons, I should have it the way I want, because it's obviously the right way. And God says, well, you don't know nearly as much as you think you do. Yeah. And that's why we have faith, that he knows when we haven't a clue. Yeah. Don? I was just going to say, um, <clears throat> as far as like the body and how it, doesn't he say there's like gnashing of teeth? Weeping and gnashing of teeth, Weeping yeah. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, which would obviously lead you to believe that there would be a body in hell. Yeah. Yeah, everybody rises. <laughs> everybody lives eternally. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I, I think that the doctrine of hell is something that should be uncomfortable and it should bring us sorrow um, and we shouldn't we certainly shouldn't take delight in the fact that you know, you know some people are going to I, I think that that would be cause for grief right um, but at the same time I I don't think we can just sweep it aside you know, from what the text, what Jesus himself says. So happy thoughts.
No, 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 that's, that's okay. I think you recognize that I was starting to struggle for time too, so thank you. <laughs> um, so all along, Paul has spoken about uh, sin in the flesh and life in the spirit. And, and, and you know, so the, the life invades the flesh, it invades the body, and, and the body lives. Um, this life in the body, it's because of the indwelling of the spirit. You know, Ephesians 2 again, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. That doesn't mean that people's lungs aren't filling and, and, you know, and emptying. It doesn't mean that their hearts aren't beating. You know, they're, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, though. So when you have the Spirit of God in you, you are eternally alive now. Your flesh is redeemed and renewed now. But these bodies are still going to die. And that's because the sin continues to cling to our flesh. And so what Paul has done here is moved from the dichotomy to a paradox. The dichotomy is that there is the flesh and the spirit, and there the twain shall meet. And now in the body, the spirit dwells and God is at work in us. And we find ourselves at the same time saint and sinner. We find ourselves dead in our trespasses and sins, but alive in Christ. And, and this is the, the, the tension that we live in, that in and of ourselves we would be dead, and yet God has done this thing in us and made us alive and made us new. And yet, I keep doing the old things, and I keep coming back and receiving the forgiveness that makes new and makes alive. And, and it's the Christian walk between death and life. Were you going to say something, Ed? I'm just wondering, first, actual salvation comes from grace. But if someone does something righteous or refrains from doing something sinful for the sole purpose of avoiding hell, is that a worthy motivation? Um, we're going to get to a passage in Romans okay. that says, essentially, that anything that is not faith is sin. So, if I do something out of my own self-preservation, you know, that externally, you know, looks like the right thing, but it's not connected to faith and trust that Jesus died for me, my sins are forgiven in him, and I have new life in him. If I'm trying to earn something, That's it. I guess what I, I, I get a picture of all those those billboards I see. So yeah. Convincing people that hell is real, so they'll be scared. And, and I, I never feel very good about those billboards. No, you know, yeah, I don't. I don't find those. I, you, there's some of them on the way down to Columbus uh, that I've I've seen. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't find that to be peculiarly helpful, really. Mm -hmm. 
And it doesn't really fit with what the scriptures teach about how a person comes to faith. Right. Um, that uh, it's the gospel that creates faith. Yeah. The law condemns. You know, and uh, you know the whole you know hell is hot you know message you know is, is very much law. Yeah. Now, I do think that uh, um, I, I do think that. Sometimes people seem to think that there are no consequences uh, for the choices and the actions that we have in this life, mm-hmm. you know. And I do think that, that pointing out that there are consequences, you know, that there's a place for that. I don't think it's billboards, though. <laughs> I think that's a, a conversation. I so comforted when I out once more toward Findlay than Columbus, and in the same sort of setting, I came across another billboard. That just said, "Love God, love your neighbor, don't sweat the rest." And it was like a feeling of relief from you know. But but notice, even that is a statement of law. Right. You know, well, it's a statement of what you should of love, not action. But it's still a statement in the law. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't talk about what God has done for you. You know, sometimes I'm not too loving my I, I'm not saying that the message doesn't need to be said, right? right. You know, I, you know. It, it doesn't say, and this is how you avoid hell. Or right. You know, it's basically repeating what Jesus told us. So I, I you know, you know, maybe it isn't an absolute, a laid out contrast to the other. Right. You know. No. Yeah. When I say, you know, it's a statement of the law, so far in Romans, have we heard that the law is good? Over and over again. Yeah. So I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad thing. Uh, I, I just, you know, in, in terms of what do we present to the world, I think that sometimes we're way better at presenting performance and, you know, doing the right things than we are at presenting Christ crucified. And of the two, it's Christ crucified that is going to be our salvation. Because love God and love your neighbor is still about me. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. Not about what God's right. Larry. But Lewis himself says that there don't be afraid or don't say that there's only one way. That there's lots of paths to get that. And he's wrong. A statement by somebody. It could be something you experience out in the woods, I mean, <clears throat> you have to keep at it. No, this is one of the places that Lewis is deficient. Because he does seem at various points to imply that there are multiple paths to God. Uh, and he's wrong. You know, Jesus himself says, you know, I am the way, the truth, right, and the but life. I think he's making the point that there are multiple paths to Jesus. And, yeah. You may you you may have an epiphany. I mean, you may get like Paul did, knocked off your horse. Somebody else, it may happen through osmosis, and somebody else, it may happen through a word they read or somebody speaks to them. I'm just saying uh, we have to be at the job and not worry too much about what approach we take to get to Christ. I guess I yeah. except that is always going to be connected to the word. Right. I won't have any problem with that, but... I didn't figure you would. 
Jesus said spread the gospel. He didn't yes. say spread the law. Right. 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 Said, Go out, spread the gospel. Right. And Romans says, you know, the law is written on our hearts. This is something, you know, we, we recognize our guilt if we're not, like, you know, covering it up. You know, and even people who cover it up, they, they will run into things that show them, you know, their, their deficiencies. Um, but, yeah. There's a pair of people who show up at the, uh, the student center at Kent State. Basically, they yell and scream at the students about how they're all sinners and they're all going to hell. They scream at everybody who walks by, apparently. Yeah. Some people try to engage them. <laughs> it's a waste of breath. There's a proverb about um, fools. Yes. <laughs> that if you instruct a fool, you're just inviting um, suffering. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and sometimes that's just, yeah. There were some similar things down around university circle. And I yeah. remember one day in the summer, one day hearing some guy, and there were some girls going by, and he's like, and yes, and I'm talking to you, you and the... The skin type leotard. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He's losing it. Sometimes we are our own worst enemy. Yeah. You know, so, <clears throat> well, we're out of time. Um, but uh, I do think it's worth thinking about what do we present to the world? You know, do we present forgiveness? Do we present you know, salvation in Christ? Or are we presenting a new set of rules? Or an old set of rules repackaged? And so. not just the world, but the children, our children. What are we saying and doing yes. to children so that when they get to junior high and high school and college, they're not let off the path because yeah. we've misrepresented who Jesus is. And it's so easy to do. Yeah, so what we're talking about is evangelism. And evangelism means proclaiming the good news. Christians need to be evangelized too. Mm -hmm. We need to hear the good news and have the good news spoken on us as well. So, all right, well, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you keep people safe on the roads as we're heading home or uh, when, that, when that time comes. And we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, you'd gather us back here together to live in your grace and forgiveness together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, folks.